Uh, we're going to get started without without much of a formal introduction. I'll save that for the uh, uh, for the ten o'clock hour. Uh, we're happy to have Brother Kyle Butt and his wife Bethany with us this morning. Uh, we're looking forward to the lessons on stewardship. I told Kyle when we invited him, I said, "Really, what I want you to to focus on is just to keep on keeping on." Uh, Dalreda is one of the most given congregations that that I've ever seen, and uh, so we're we're thankful for your given spirit. We're thankful for all that you do at Dalreda to make all the works that are going on here possible, and uh, we welcome Kyle and Bethany. Uh, this morning, and we look forward to having them with us. If you know me, you know I'm not lying when I say if Bethany and I are traveling, then lots of times I got a text last night and said, uh, is Bethany with you? And I said, yes, she's going to be with me. And the people that text me said, oh, well, then we're going to come. That is generally how those things work. Love getting to see you guys. And when somebody asks me, hey, Kyle, can you come and do any lessons that you want? Now, I preach all over the country and sometimes all over the world. Preach on everything from the inspiration of the Bible to the existence of God to the morality of God's actions in the Old Testament. You name it, I have preached on it probably. But when somebody says, hey, you can preach on anything that you want, and they invite me to come speak, I almost always, without fail, preach on the idea of giving. Because, to me, it's one of the most exciting, most thrilling, most fun, and most life-changing practical ideas of Christianity. And so, I, when I get to have a, a three-day, I mean, a, not three-day would be nice, though, wouldn't it? But when I get to have a, a three-lesson series, on the way over, Bethany said, how many times are you speaking on giving? I, I said, well, three. She said, oh, you should be able to get everything you got in three lessons. I said, no, actually, I got 13 lessons. I might have to pare it down to three because it's just so so fun and exciting. Now, if I were to stand up here and I were to say, all right, guys, we're going to have a lesson on, on baptism. We're going to preach about the importance of baptism. I think all of you would recognize that that would be something that would be good to preach on. In fact, we understand that the Bible teaches us that baptism is a necessary step of salvation. You go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, the Bible says that baptism also now saves us, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Go through the text, and if we were to say, how many sermons have we preached and heard about baptism? A bunch, and they're great, and we need them because it's necessary for salvation. If I were to say, hey, let's preach on worship this morning, on New Testament worship, maybe even just an aspect of New Testament worship like the Lord's Supper. That would be a great lesson. Lord's Supper is something we do every single Sunday. So very important to who we are and what we do and what we think about on a Sunday morning. So important. I think all of you would think, yeah, great, great topic. Let's do one on Lord's Supper. What about singing? Acapella singing in praise to God, the fruit of our lips, giving it to God as something coming from our heart 
I think we would all say, yeah, great lesson, Kyle. Let's, let's preach on that. Do you know that I could preach on faith? I could preach on baptism. I could preach on singing and worship and add about four other very common topics that we deal with all the time. And every one of those combined would not be discussed as much in the New Testament as the topic of money and giving. Now, how is that? You mean to tell me that baptism, which is absolutely necessary for our salvation, when we reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ in those waters of baptism, you mean to tell me the Bible says more about money and how we deal with money than that? Oh, ten times more than that, or, or even more than that. I'm saying you add all that stuff together and you still don't get as much discussion as you do in the New Testament on money. Do you know that one out of two parables of Jesus deals with money? One out of six verses in the New Testament deals with money. There are over 1,400 verses in the Bible that deal with money, how you look at money, how God thinks about money, how God thinks about the money you got. Now, why in the world is that the case? Why did God think it was so important to talk about money that He talked about it once in every two parables that Jesus ever spoke? Well, I don't know exactly. The Bible doesn't say, hey, this is why God talks about money more than most topics in the Bible. I'll tell you what I think. I think God talks about money and your relationship with money because you're forced to think about it every day. You get up in the morning, you go out to your car, you ask yourself a simple question, do I have enough gas to get to church this morning? Uh, before you got up to your car, got up and went to your car, you went to your closet and you needed a coat this morning, rarely. Do you need a coat here in Montgomery, Alabama? But every now and then you actually have to have a, a warm coat and you thought, oh, okay, I'm going to get my warm coat today. I'm, I might not need it at three o'clock this afternoon, but I'm going to need it this morning. You get your warm coat. Okay, where'd you get that coat? You bought it with money? Probably. When you thought about the uh, the fellowship meal, I don't know if I don't know what we're doing here as far as if if you brought stuff or if the congregation supplying it or whatever. But when you do have a fellowship meal, you start thinking, okay, if I'm gonna make two casseroles, I'm gonna need chicken. Where's the best price on uh, boneless chicken breast that we can put in the crock pot? Okay, you start thinking it's money. You think about money every day. You think about money all the time. You think, what's it gonna cost us to do this? I better take my wallet because I'm need my credit card to do this. Money is something that you think about on a regular basis. In fact, if I were to ask you this simple question, do you think about heaven or money more? Think about God or money more. You think about your spouse or money more. You think about money a lot. Now, God understood that. And understands that. And so he basically has said, I feel like in his New Testament, hey, you think about money a lot? Well, let's think about it. Let's do discuss it. Let's talk about it. I, I'm going to put uh, one out of two parables in Jesus' preaching on money. I'm going to put one out of six verses in the New Testament about money and stewardship and your relationship with money. Now, I think one of the most important reasons that we need to discuss your proper relationship with money I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Mark, and you're going to look in Mark chapter 10. And in Mark chapter 10, you're going to come across a story. It's not a, it's not a I wouldn't say a story, a historical account of Jesus dealing with a person. And you have this young man that at the 
outset of the story looks exactly like any person you would absolutely love whose attitude was amazing and thrilling. And if people in your city would be like this guy, everything would be great. You start right there in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And you read that there was this guy, verse 17, as Jesus was going on the road, one came running to him, knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? How hard is it to get somebody to that question in your discussions at work? You know, wouldn't you be thrilled to death if you're at your uh, wherever you work, let's say you're in your office, maybe you're in your cubbyhole, maybe you're outside getting ready to trim some bushes or whatever. depends on what you do. And somebody from your business or maybe somebody from a strong, across the street, maybe they're working over exact speeds, but they've got a break, and they run across the road. And you're looking at them thinking, hmm, it's got this guy running. And you wait until they run up to you and they say, man, I've heard you are a Christian. What do I need to do to go to heaven? What would you think about a person like that? Wow, this guy is, is awesome. This is, this is exactly what you wish every person would do. He says, good teacher, what good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus probably surprises him rather a lot when Jesus says, why are you calling me good? There's none good, but one, that's God. Now, I think the young man probably was taken aback and thought, oh, I'm just, I'm just asked this man of God, a question about how to get to heaven, and he's not even really addressing my question. He's kind of getting on to me. But I think what Jesus was trying to do here was, was actually very simple. He's saying to the rich young ruler, hey, if you're calling me good, and there's only one who's good, and that's God, and you're right that I'm good, then that means I'm, that means I'm gone. Now, there's a really important reason why Jesus wants to nail that down up front. You go to your buddy and you ask him what he thinks you ought to do with a million dollars you just inherited. He tells you you don't like the advice. What do you say? Eh, I don't think so. You go to your financial advisor and he explains this is what he feels like is the best thing for you to do with your money. And you look at your priorities. You think, no, nah, that's not really what I got on my priority list. I'm, I'm not going to do that. You go to your preacher and he says... This is what he thinks you ought to do with money. Eh, I mean, what's, what do preachers really know about money anyway? They don't. You go to God and say, what do I need to do with my money? Well, when God says it, it's not good advice. This isn't good financial advice from somebody who's passed a financial test here. This is whatever God says. If you really believe that I'm good and there's only one that's good and that's God, then I'm not giving you good financial advice. I'm giving you a commandment straight from God. So then Jesus says, all right, now let's show you how God interacts with His people. Keep the commandments. Okay, of course, then the rich young ruler says, which ones? Here's what Jesus says. And it's very interesting that you look at the commandments that Jesus says that you should keep. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder do not steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Why do you think that Jesus put do not steal and don't defraud there for you to read? Because this guy, in my mind's eye, I see him when this list of stuff is rattled off, I see him get just a big old smile on his face 
And he's thinking, this is the exact answer I was hoping for. This, this is what I thought. But here's something about him. He knows deep down there's something missing in his, in his life with God. He knows that there is. That's why he's here. But when Jesus says, you keep the commandments, the guy, I think, just is like, oh, yeah. this is it. Now, here's why I think it's important for us on the stealing and the defrauding. Okay, this is a rich young ruler. Number one, he's very wealthy. Number two, he views himself as a faithful Jew. So he's been giving at least 10% of his income up to 30% of his income for his entire life. When Jesus says, keep the commandments, don't steal, he hasn't done anything dishonest to get his money. You know, lots of times when we look at the idea of covetousness, we'll say, well, yeah, a covetous person is somebody who'll do whatever it takes to get money. They'll steal or they'll defraud people or they'll do bad business deals. No, that's not necessarily a covetous person. No, a covetous person will do that. But this young man who is very wealthy, hasn't stolen anything, kept these commandments since he was a little kid, hasn't defrauded anybody, wasn't a bad business dealer. Every bit of money it looks like that he has came from a very honest working life and he was given at least 10% of it if he was a faithful Jew and it looks like he was and probably given upwards of 30 of it. And so then Jesus looks at him and says one thing you lack. Now stop right there and this is why I feel like preaching on giving is, is so important and exciting. Could it be that you have everything else arranged in your Christian life in a way that is in line with what God says, but not your relationship with money? If this person was sitting on our pew today, would we think that is the way every Christian ought to look? They ought to be excited about what they need to do to go to heaven. They ought to be doing what the law says to do. Everything looks perfect on this guy. Except... His relationship with money. One thing you lack. Now let's explore that. One thing you lack for what? One thing you lack for your emotional happiness? One thing you lack to uh, be recognized in the community as one thing you lack for what? What's the question? Good teacher, what good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? One thing this guy lacks to do what? To go to heaven. To be saved. That makes it pretty important, doesn't it? One thing you lack, go sell everything that you've got. Give it to the poor and follow me. That's tough, isn't it? <laughs> you know, how many times have we tried to say, yeah, but that doesn't mean you need to do that. I mean, yeah, that was for the rich young ruler. It doesn't mean you guys need to do that because, I mean, show of hands in here, how many of you have sold every single thing you ever had, gave it to people who need it, and... You then said, okay, I sold it all. Okay, I have not. I, ha I haven't done it. I haven't sold everything I've got. My, my wife and I have been in discussions. We've said we'll, get, we'll sell 99% of stuff, but not that one. No, okay. But, okay we, I mean, who does that? Why did this man need to do it? Because later when you look at Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus said he was giving 50% of everything that he had. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, hey, today the kingdom of God has come to you. God has, has not said sell everything you have to every person. But why to this man? Well, you look and see, and the Bible explains that the rich young man 
verse 22, was sad at this word and went away grieved or sorrowful. Now here's the punchline. Because he had great possessions. Okay, well that's not how money works. Look, people who have more possessions are happier, aren't they? I mean, there's no way this guy's going to be sad because he has great possessions. You know, most of us think, well, I'm not exactly where I'd like to be emotionally or in, I could be happier. And I just think if I had a little bit more money, then I would be happier. No, this guy went away because he had great possessions. But what's the flip side of that? And because he did not obey God's instructions on what he should do with his possessions. Do you know that if you listen and think about and study what the Bible says about giving, and at the end of that discussion, you say, you know what, I hear what the Bible says, but I'm not going to do that. You'll always be sad. You'll always go away sorrowfully. So here's why I think it's so exciting. I think that there are a lot of people in the world that have their lives arranged very well as it relates to God and His Word. But I think sometimes a discussion on money is something that they have never really looked into the Bible to see what the Bible actually says about it, or they haven't maybe learned about what the text says. And it's something that they need to seriously consider. Hey, do I need to change the way I do things with my money? And so what I'd like to present to you this morning and then this afternoon is this question. Maybe you have studied what the Bible says about money and maybe you know what God wants you to do with the money He entrusts you with. That is awesome. That's great. And, you know, from what I hear from the eldership and have seen in my relationship with many of you, lots of you do absolutely understand what the Bible teaches about money and are practicing that. And the elders wanted me to make sure I let you know that they feel like this congregation is one of the most giving, generous congregations that understands the teaching on money that there is. And I, I second that from everything I have interacted with many of you about. However, could it be that you as an individual member or as a family unit, etc., need to think Am I using my money to bring glory to my Creator in a way that makes Him happy and excited about how I do things? And so, that's what we're going to be exploring. Now, the first thing that you've got to do in order to do that is recognize that you are a steward. Paul told the Corinthians, he said, Moreover, it is imperative in a steward that a steward be found faithful. Now, what in the world does it mean to be a steward? Well, it's real simple. Steward is somebody who doesn't own stuff. They use it and take it into their possession and allocate it in a way that the owner is happy with. And so if you're a steward, the next question is, well, who owns it? Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Psalms. It's going to be Psalm 50. And in Psalm 50, you're going to read a statement about the ownership of everything in the universe. I would say on the planet, but the universe is much, much bigger than that. I mean, I'm talking everything. Psalm 50. Look in verse 9. God talking, of course, to Israel here, but he says, 
I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you. For the world is mine in all its fullness. Who owns everything? Now, really, that's a rhetorical question. It's not even hard for us to answer, especially on a stewardship Sunday. If we are to ask the simple question, who owns everything? The immediate answer is God owns everything. You go to the end of 1 Chronicles, it's very exciting to see David talking about all the money and gold and silver he's amassed to give to Solomon to build the temple. And David says at the bottom of it, he says, but it's all yours and we're just giving you back what's yours anyway. You ever own something that you ask for it back and the person that you ask for, even just some of it didn't want to give it to you? It's real aggravating. I remember buying my son, I won't say which one, a bag of Dorito chips. Cool Ranch Doritos are the best. Uh, they came out, I think, in like 1985. And I thought someone had, had created something that should be illegal. They were so delicious. We would just buy bags of Cool Ranch Dorito chips. And, and I remember, I think my son had a, had a bag of Dorito chips. And it was a whole bag. Bought him a whole bag. It was a smaller bag. I mean, it wasn't the big one. And I said, can I have a chip? Now, I just bought them for him and, and was allowing him to eat them. And I said, can I have a chip? He reached in. You know, they're the, the good ones, if they're not broken, are the, the straight triangles, the, the triangle. He picked off a corner of one triangle that was, was less than the size of a tartan tiny. I mean, I'm talking... And handed it to me like he had done something good by sharing his chip with me. And I said, I, that whole bag of chips is mine. You can give me one corner of a little chip and I own the whole bag. I'm just letting you eat it. Okay, what does stewardship look like? Well, the first thing you've got to recognize, and I'm telling you what the rich young ruler just did not understand and what we need to understand in order to get right with God's money is that it's God's money. And when the Bible says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, you know, lots of times, well, I live up in middle Tennessee now, Columbia, where we grew up, and there'll be a, just a rolling field of beautiful green grass. And now my favorite looking cow in the world is, is a brangus, a, a black Angus looking Brahma cross. And there'll be 50 of them on the side of a lush green hill down on the, in the little valley area, there'll be a guy with a Ford F-250 truck, uh, Red Barn, and you just drive by, it's probably got 200 acres, and you're thinking, man, that is a farming setup right there. That, that is beautiful. When the Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, do you think it means He owns the cattle on a thousand hills where nobody else claims ownership? Like, oh, God doesn't own those cows because that farmer owns those cows. But on the other hill where there's some wild ones running around, God... No, God owns them all. All 50 of those head of Brangus cows are God's. And guess what? So is the F-250 truck. And so is the barn. And so is everything else in that valley. God owns it. And until we get in our minds that it's God's stuff, we'll never have a proper relationship with it. We'll always think, what am I going to do with my stuff? You know, there's a story about a guy that was infected with meitis 
What am I going to do with my stuff? I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 12. You'll see what happens when we get the, the wrong impression about stuff. Luke chapter 12. You're going to start right there in verse 16. Jesus spoke a parable about a man saying, the ground of a certain rich man, verse 16 of Luke chapter 12, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns. I'll build greater and there. I'll store all my crops and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, <laughs> you, wonder, you wonder how he talks to himself, what voice he used to talk to himself, soul. You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, let's read that again. And let's emphasize the misunderstanding that the man had. Okay, let's read it like this. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your easy, drink and be merry. What's his problem? He thinks it's his. All he can think about is, is himself. What am I going to do with my stuff? Well, guess what? There's only one thing you own, and you're not even thinking about it. What's the one thing that Jesus Christ says is His? You fool. This night, your soul will be required of you. There's one thing that this man actually has power to control. And Jesus is trying to show everybody who's listening to this parable, this man doesn't even have power to control his stuff because he's going to die and then whose stuff is going to be tomorrow? It's not his anymore. He's gone. He had one important thing to control and he didn't even think about it because he was thinking that his money was his when it wasn't his in the first place. And Stan Neuenschwander from Eastern Meadows, as I think Brother VP Black was, was preaching on this, he said, I think it was a class and he raised his hand or it came up to me after one of the two and he said, you know what's very interesting about that particular parable? Look at the very first line of it. Now the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Who even did the work in the parable? The ground did the work. If that rich man didn't have good fertile ground, he wasn't getting anything anyway. It's not our stuff. And until we come to grips with the exciting idea that I've been given stuff from the master to be a steward over for just a little while, and it matters what he says about how I should use it because it's not my stuff. You know, we had a professor up at Freed Hardman. He understood this very well. He had a truck, and lots of times when you moved into Freed Hardman, some of the freshmen would have cars and things, and they wouldn't have a truck that they could move their um, refrigerators and couches and things like that. And so it was just known that you could go to this guy and borrow his truck. But when you did, lots of times he would say something like this. That freshman would come up to him and say, hey, can we borrow your truck? And he would say, oh, yeah, let me get the keys, but just wanted to let you know it's not my truck. And they would look at him quizzically and say, but it's not your truck. I'm, what do you mean it's not your truck? He said, no, it's not my truck. I'm just using it for a while. It's actually God's truck. And he would give them the keys and he would say, and God doesn't like scratches. 
know, I, I don't know how God feels about scratches, but I do know that that man had a proper understanding of his stuff. Hey, not only have I been blessed with this truck, but I can teach these incoming freshmen a lesson about generosity and a lesson about stewardship. I don't own this truck. God owns it. And I'm glad to let anybody use it that wants to, but when you use it, take care. Pretty good teaching there all in a single sentence. Now, you and I both understand that if a person does not understand stewardship, you don't do business with them. Right, let me explain to you what I mean. You go down to a bank and you decide you're going to open an account. You open an account. You put $3,000 in that account. Come back in a couple weeks and you realize that you need to take some out. So you go up to the teller and you say, hey, would you mind letting me withdraw $500 from my account? You give them the account number. She says, oh, yeah, I see that you put $3,000 in here a couple weeks ago. Um, we assumed it was ours. Have you seen the updates to the four-year? We use that money to update the four-year, and we don't have any of it left to give to you. Thank you for depositing that money in our bank. Okay, what is a bank? A bank is a steward of your money. Well, let's clarify it's a steward of the money that you've been entrusted with that's not yours anyway, but you are responsible for it at the present. If a bank misunderstands stewardship, do you give that bank any more of your time or, or the money that you've been entrusted with? Do you say, oh, so you treat this money like it's yours when I deposit? I'm going to bring a bunch more to you. No, a steward is somebody who recognizes that the money is not theirs and they treat it like the master wants it treated. Now, let me give you another example of this that you well understand. If somebody didn't understand stewardship, you just would not do any type of business with them. And let's say you have a college young lady. She is living over on Faulkner's dorm, but she needs a place to stay for the summer. And you're going away for the summer for about three months. And you say, okay, hey, we happen to be taking a long trip for about three months. You can house sit for us. And she says, oh, that'll be great. I'll just uh, make sure, keep everything, you know, up and make sure that whatever needs to be done and that'll be great. You guys go away. Don't worry about a thing. And she walks into the house and after about a week, she says, you know what? I don't like the color on these walls. And the, you know, this, this real, real moderate wheat sheaf is just not doing it for me. I, you know, I, I really like psychedelic pink and have a have always. And you know what? I just feel like I'm kind of cramped in this living areas, but I feel like this will be better without this wall between the kitchen and the living room. And so she decides she's going to repaint the house, but first she's going to take a wall out so she can invite some of her other buddies over and they just decide they're going to do some home demolition on the wall. She takes the wall out, repaints the whole thing, decides that the landscaping out front isn't any good, so she rips up all the bushes and puts down sand and you come home to a house that doesn't look a thing like yours and she says, welcome home. Are you excited about what she's done to your home? Well, I mean, if you wanted that wall out anyway and you like psychedelic paint, you never liked cutting those bushes, maybe. But the chances are no. Why? Because she acted like it was hers. When you act like it's yours and it's not yours, the owner of it will not be happy with how you deal with things. And so that's what you've got to recognize. That the stuff you've got has been entrusted to you for you to use for a brief time and then it will go to someone else and how you used it in relation to how the master that owns it said use it is what you'll be accountable for. You say, well, no, I mean, this stuff is mine. Yeah, well, I mean, you think it is? Uh, the pyramids are the greatest monument to stuff not being a person's that there ever has been. 
The Egyptian pharaohs thought that they were so wealthy that they were going to take their stuff to the other side of death with them and they built massive pyramids and shoved it with all of their favorite stuff. They literally killed their favorite servants, had their favorite wives strangled to be mummified with them, put their favorite chariot horses and chariots. They mummified their favorite cats. Put them in there. Do you know what happened to the favorite chariots and chariot horses of the pharaohs that were buried in the pyramids? Grave robbers got just about everything that there was, and those pharaohs didn't take a single thing with him. You know, it's kind of like that lady. She was married to that old miser, and he had millions and millions of dollars, and he would never let her spend any of it. Counted every single cent she ever spent. Pinched every penny till you couldn't even see whose head was on it. And just, I mean, he never let her spend any. And he was dying. He could feel it. But he was ornery enough to keep living until she made him a promise. He said, look, you got to promise to bury me with my money. And she said, no, I'm not burying you with your money. Absolutely not. That's not happening. I'm never burying you with my money. I'm going to spend it as soon as I get, as soon as you're out of here, I'm spending it all. He said, no, I'm not dying then. I'm not dying until you promise to bury with me, with me with my money. And just was ornery and just hung on. She said, finally, she said, fine. Okay, I'll bury you with your money. He said, okay. Just a couple, couple days after that, he died. Well, the best friend of this lady saw as she went out and she started buying everything. And she had talked to her about this promise she had made to her husband. And she bought a new car, bought a new house, was buying new clothes all over the place, started taking vacations. And her best friend said, said, what in the world? I thought you promised him that you would bury him with his money. She said, oh, I did. She said, I wrote him a check and put it right there in that casket and he can cash it anytime he wants. It's not your stuff. It's going to be somebody else's stuff when you die. And you are a steward of it. And until we get that idea down, then we just will not process what God wants us to do with his stuff. Now, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And this to me is a, a really exciting lesson about stewardship. God is really glad to let you use His stuff. You know, over in James chapter 5, the Bible, chapter 1, it says that if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And that word without reproach means not like most dads at a basketball game when a kid comes up and asks for money for the concession stand. Now, you know how that goes lots of times. A kid will come up and ask for money for the concession stand, and the dad will pull it out and be like, well, how much did you say you needed? Five dollars. Well, what's the thing concession stand? It's five dollars. One dollar is all you need, and look, you could probably bring me back some change for this one and don't ask again. Okay, without reproach is when... Somebody gives it to you, but they basically dog you for asking for it, and they tell you that don't get used to this process. Okay, that's not how God does it. God is excited to give His stuff to people that appreciate it and are grateful for it and will use it how He's asking them to use it. Now, we're going to have to run through this. I hope that's a five-minute bell. What I'm getting lately is... It's a, like a 12-second bell, and they bring it twice immediately. But this, it, let's, if this is five, it's going to be perfect. Okay, so God tells them right in verse 7, The Lord your God's going to bring you into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to live in houses that you didn't build. You're going to drink out of water wells that you didn't dig. 
What I always like to ask the simple question is, if you had an Israelite who just moved into the promised land, who's in the land of milk and honey, the land that you sing about, Canaan's land, I'm on my way, and you put them right here on this pew, are they as financially prosperous as you are? Did they have running water in their house? No, they still had to go out to the spring to get it. Did they have an air conditioner or a heating unit in their house that they could touch a little knob and turn the degree of temperature up to exactly what they wanted? Did they have a refrigerator or a Publix that they could go down and get any type of food that they wanted and just drive down and drive back to their house? You're richer than any person ever that stepped into the promised land of Canaan. It's funny to me that I think the Israelites would be singing to the United States, I'm on mine. Because this place is killing it in every financial regard. Now, as you look at it, when you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Hey guys, that's exciting. God gave you the stuff. Can you? Do you have the resources to eat a steak basically anytime you want to? You know, lots of times people will say, well, you should feel guilty about the stuff that you have and you should feel bad and you should try to make sure that every... Okay, the Bible never says feel guilty about stuff God entrusts you with. Never one time. In fact, he says when you sit down to that good steak that you love to eat, you look up to heaven and say, God, this is yours and I really appreciate you giving it to me. This is thrilling. It, when you get a half and half sweet tea from Jim and Nick's barbecue and you sit there and, and you don't even know where tea leaves come from. You've never even seen, seen a tea leaf tree. And you know you didn't get the, the sugar for it out of anything, but you have everything you need. And ice? You think the Canaanites ever had ice? The, the Israelites that moved to Canaan, you think they had ice? I'm talking about the good ice. Jim and Nick's has got the little, little pieces of ice that are kind of soft when you crunch on them. They don't even break apart. They just smush down. I mean, you got that ice, half and half Jim and Nick's sweet tea. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this. He says, when I give you stuff, recognize where it comes from and we'll have a great time. And he says, just be careful. That, look at verse 70. That you do not forget the Lord your God. And then you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he swore in your, with your fathers to this day. Here's what he says. You've got to recognize that it's my stuff. And if at any point you start thinking it's yours, and it doesn't matter how you use it, and you'll use it how you want, and it doesn't matter what your master has said about using his stuff, do you know why you have it? Why you happen to live in a country where you can work for one month at minimum wage and make more than, I don't know what the percentage is, maybe 40% of the world's population will make their entire life. Then let me repeat that. Without any type of education whatsoever, you don't even have to have a high school diploma. You can make in this country in one month more than 40% of the world's population will make in their entire life. Now, why is it? Because you're smarter? Because we're somehow superior in some way? Because we're better? No, because God happened to put you in a place where your work is more financially prosperous to you than the rest of the world, than 40% of the world's population is for their whole life. You say, wow, that doesn't seem fair. Fair to who? Because sometimes we start to think that 
having money is something that is inherently makes us better and makes it easier. You remember what Jesus said. How hard is it for a rich person to enter heaven? It's harder for a rich person to enter heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now you put that Israelite who's just gone into Canaan and you put yourself right here on this pew and ask a simple question, which of these two is it going to be harder for to get into heaven? And Jesus answered that question for you. Us. Because if I were to ask you, think of a rich person. <laughs> you know, I've never had a person. Never had a person say that they thought of their self when they thought of somebody who was rich. You know what we normally do when we say, think of a rich person. The per person we think is somebody who always has more than, more than us. But folks, I'm telling you, if people said, think of a rich person, they're thinking of us sitting on these pews in an air-conditioned building uh, at a church service on Sunday morning in the United States of America, and they're thinking that person is as rich as anybody I've ever seen. And that's exciting because God gives it to you and says, hey, let's work together. But lots of times we forget that it's God's stuff. If we remember that, we'll be well on our way to understanding the relationship that God wants us to have with His money.